Otasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Uram Damang Sangang Namasami So I thought I'd talk a little bit tonight about the uh, mental hindrance of ill will, aversion. Uh, earlier in the week, uh, Venerable Punadamo gave a very helpful talk where he uh, addressed a couple of the, the mental hindrances, restlessness and worry and doubt and sloth and torpor, and talked about some things that are really useful in working with these states. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, there's five mental hindrances. These are the things that come up in the mind and get in the way of uh, concentration, samadhi, and make it difficult for us to find peace or serenity in the mind. Remember one talk Ajahn Suchito gave, he said, uh, you may be surprised at this point in your practice to realize that there's only five mental hindrances. certainly seems like there's a whole lot going on in there. So the other two that he didn't address were um, sensual desire and uh, ill will or aversion. So I'd like to talk about the, the second one. It's kind of the flip side of sensual desire. Um, that's the, the longing for things that we don't have. You know, that the uh, coming into contact with something that we find pleasant, whether it's a, a sensation or a thought or a feeling or even just a, an idea, you know, an image, a fantasy. And uh, the mind just gets really stuck on it like glue, uh, trying to uh, grasp or, or hold on to the experience and not seeing that it's a conditioned phenomenon, so therefore it's impermanent and it, it can't be held on to. And so um, ill will and aversion is the opposite of that. We come into contact with things that we find unpleasant or difficult to bear, and uh, the mind is scrambling, trying to get away from it, uh, push it away, trying to not experience or not have the things that it finds unpleasant. You know, in the... um, in the chanting in the in the morning, we um, chant the phrases uh, association with the disliked is dukkha, separation from the liked is dukkha, not attaining one's wishes is dukkha. And, and really, in the experience of the unawakened mind, we don't see this as a simple truth of life that this is part of our experience as human beings. There is suffering, and it's difficult to bear. But because we don't see that, then the mind very easily moves into uh, states of aversion and hatred, ill will, trying to get away from it. 
So it's really based in the ignorance in the mind. You know, so if we could free ourselves of the ignorance, we wouldn't have to experience these states. So you, you've probably seen a little bit of it <laughs> in the last few days. <laughs> it really is a broad range of experience, which it, it includes very coarse levels of uh, aversion, uh, hatred, out-and-out rage. Um, it's the kind of states that uh, violent acts can be committed out of. And then there's a more garden variety uh, where there's a discomfort in the body or, or discomfort in the mind and sort of the scrambling to get away from things. So much of the scrambling to get away from things is actually things that the mind is creating in response to what's happening. You, so you can get into these very subtle states of aversion where we're trying to get away from our own ideas, you know, our own thoughts, things that we've just created in the moment. It's amazing to watch, isn't it? You know, many of you were talking the other day in the question and answer period, and certainly in the groups, um, about the physical discomfort. There seems to be a lot of physical discomfort (laughs) in this retreat. Um, And the experience of uh, really uh, going into very constricted and tight contracted states in relation to it. And you can see how this compounds it, but it's sort of a vicious cycle. Can't quite break out of it. I, I know in myself I was amazed at the extent of, of the rage in my mind. I, I never knew it until I started to meditate. You know, I, I always thought that I was this, this kind of mild-mannered little gal, you know, <laughs> and, until uh, uh, experiencing pain during a sitting. And, um, you know, having that, that feeling, which I'm sure you've had, that the, that the sittings are getting longer and longer. You know? <laughs> you know, they aren't. We haven't had a sitting during this retreat that has been more than 45 minutes. But, you know, they'll feel that way when there's a lot of pain in the body. And I used to get so much. I, I used to call it golf balls. You know, I'd have these golf balls in my spine. And, uh, of course, you get into all these kinds of states in relation to it where you're um, condemning yourself for you're not holding the posture right, not doing it right, you know. Um, and yet, uh, there it was. And it really wasn't the posture. It was just, you know, the, the dukkha of life. Welcome to samsara kind of dukkha. So I used to spend a lot of time in the yoga room with that um, ma roller device. Have you, have you discovered that yet? <laughs> this wooden thing that you roll on and uh, these little knobs sort of uh, massage the either, either side of the spine, just trying to free myself of the pain. There was, a, there was one retreat where, um, actually the second retreat that I did here at IMS was the three-month course. And uh, this was a particularly difficult time because it was really uh, one of my first retreats. And uh, yet you're going for quite a long time. And my body wasn't used to this posture and uh, hadn't adapted very well to it at all. So I was really in a lot of physical pain. And uh, I, I don't know if you know, those of you who have done it know this, but um, during the three-month retreat, the, uh, the teachers 
don't spend a whole lot of time in the hall. There's a lot of interviews, and so uh, they have these little sign-up sheets where uh, somebody can sign up to be what we call a practice leader, and um, you uh, are responsible that day to come to every sitting and ring the bell at the end of the sitting. Well, on this this particular retreat, there was this uh, fella who was the practice leader on this day that I was uh, in a lot of pain. And uh, he was somebody that I had already uh, had a great disliking for. <laughs> you, know, you know how these things come up. I mean, it's like I had no idea who this man was or, or what he was about. But um, I, I think I seem to recall that one day he sat next to me uh, during lunch and uh, he made a lot of noise when he ate. <laughs> so there's that you know the whole time that you're trying to, to enjoy your meal or at least watch it mindfully and uh, it was it's such torment to hear this sound at this particular time that I remember sitting there with tears streaming down my face while I was eating it was so horrible I hate this and, and not getting up and moving you know but my mind was really tight and constricted so, unfortunately uh, uh, for, for this fellow, he happened to be the practice leader on the day when I was really in a lot of pain. And uh, as the rage in me grew, you know, uh, first with the pain, and then with this idea that I just knew this guy was not ringing the bell and that the time had gone, you know, <laughs> I just knew it. Because he was just that kind of guy. (laughs) (laughs) I was certain he was testing us. So then all my rage with my physical discomfort got projected onto him. And, uh, you know, in a flash, I I had this image where this side door flew open and and Rambo came flying into the meditation hall. all bare-chested and uh, with bullet sashes, you know, on his, uh, on his body and a, and a gun in his hand. And he shot the practice leader. <laughs> and, then, and then he shot one more time at the bell. <laughs> and when the bell went off, all the yogis stood up on his avatons and cheered, you know. <laughs> But this is what it's like, isn't it? I mean, it's, a, it's amazing what can go on in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've had, had quite a few Vipassana vendettas. I was telling Ajahn about one earlier where there was a woman who came to a retreat who uh, wore high heels. Oh! <laughs> I hated her. I used to go <laughs> I used to actually walk around the halls looking for her so I could hate her. <laughs> oh, it was such torment. Buddha said that this uh, state of mind is like a, a bright light that blinds us. 
blinds us. And you can feel that sense of blinding rage, just completely losing touch with any semblance of reality, you know, wanting to destroy. You know, and I felt like that experience sort of gave me some small sense of what it must be like uh, for people who do commit violent acts. You know, they, they must be in tremendous pain to, uh, to lash out so hard. You know, it's just the mind trying to get away from unpleasant experience, from discomfort, and not seeing the truth. That, that you know, you can be with that. That that's part of life. And that the rage and the, the hatred and the aversion is, is actually more torment than the experience of just opening to the way that things are. In, uh, in the, the commentary to the Satipatthana Sutta, it says that uh, anger and hatred are like one grasping onto a hot coal or to a um, heated iron rod or grabbing a handful of excrement. And, you know, with the intention of throwing it out at the, the object of our hatred. But, you know, it's very easy to see who it's really hurting. You know, so part of our effort and, and practice is to, to get a sense of that. And, and, you know, for myself, one of the best ways that I have um, worked to free myself from these states of mind is just to feel the experience of being in that state of mind. You know, it's like really letting the heart do the work of the practice. Because, you know, the heart feels and um, it, it quite naturally inclines towards things that are pleasant and away from things that are unpleasant. So, you know, it's been my experience that if, if you can really get closely in touch with the unpleasantness of these states of mind, then little by little the heart begins to recoil. You know, you're about to go into that state of mind. You feel this, you know, just a kind of receding, not going into it. Wonderful part of the fruits of practice. So then there's, uh, you know, the more garden variety of of, uh, hatred and ill will, which... uh, I think one of the best places on retreat to experience this is going through the food line, you know. I I often had this fantasy that it would be a really great invention if somebody could come up with a way to um, record or or get get in touch with people's thoughts as they're going through the food line and project it project it over a PA system in the in the uh, in the room. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, really have, that, that should put the edge on, you know, just sort of the restraint that it takes to, to pull back from these kinds of states. You know, such judging and criticizing goes on, and I, I see people with big bowls of food, and I think, God, who are they trying to feed, you know? <laughs> Themselves in the Russian army, you know? And um, just the, the slowness, the moving through the line slowly, and the you know, the impatience that we can get into and uh, wanting people to hurry up and move it along, get going. And I think when we're, when we're not on retreat, it's like these kinds of moments, they just sort of um, 
we just get so identified with them that we don't even see them. It's sort of like experience as maybe a mild irritation, or you might, or just you just project it onto the neighbor across the street, or the guy in the car passing you, or something, and and don't really let it into your heart because there's a there's a sense of somehow there's a, a justification in the experience, you know, because somebody is really doing something wrong, something they shouldn't be doing. Or like the other, last week, I went to see a friend in Northampton, and there was that there's this place on the way to Northampton where the four-lane highway suddenly becomes two lanes, you know, and, and I happen to be going through there at rush hour. Well, I, you know, I sat in this place for 45 minutes to go about three miles. You know, that's, that was the extent of the congestion. And I, I could see, you know, the, the thoughts coming up, you know, that somebody needs to do something about this road, you know, this is terrible. And, and lashing out at the uh, community leaders and the guy in front of me, you know, for letting somebody in. You, know. you can really, you see this. I mean, gradually with the uh, work of practice, you don't get so invested in it. But this is the kind of stuff that arises in the mind out of these uncomfortable, unpleasant moments. Somebody uh, uh, in one of the groups was, was talking about uh, the... Um, difficulty of the retreat and uh, sort of having this sense that um, it wasn't going very well, you know. And uh, we were talking about this. It was really, really a good discussion, discussion because you really get to see how, uh, in very subtle ways, the ideas that we hold about the way things should be are actually a setup for having some difficulty with the way that they actually are, you know? So you have some idea that this, the last retreat was really good, and so you get here and get her all fired up, and this is going to be a great retreat. And and you might experience something that isn't exactly the same as it was last time. You know, it might not be uh, pleasant and dreamy and, and beautiful states. It might be a lot of dukkha. And so, uh, really, if you, if you stop and look at it, what's happening in that moment is that there's just this idea that it should be a certain way. And then there's the way that it is, and the mind is comparing these and building up a state of, of uh, aversion to the way that it is. You know, it's all, it's all a fabrication. It's all being created in the mind. And we suffer tremendously. I remember um, seeing this more subtle level uh, in my own practice one time where uh, I was at Amaravati at the retreat center doing a a one-month retreat there. And um, I used to do the uh, walking meditation out behind the retreat center, which is this big meadow. And and, uh, Amaravati, if you've ever been there, it sits kind of high. it, and so it, it takes a lot of the wind, you know, it's, it's kind of exposed. And you might just walk down the lane a half a mile and it's very still, you know. But out in the field behind um, the retreat center, there's often these, you know, whirling winds and, and uh, gusts and even hailstorms uh, uh, can fly up just out of nowhere. So uh, on this particular retreat, I was doing my walking meditation back there and uh, I was experiencing a, a tremendous amount of restlessness. It was almost like a match for the for the wind, you know, the uh, uh, 
flurry in my mind was a lot like that. And uh, I was actually quite concentrated and I was seeing uh, this incredible subtle propensity in the mind for moving away you know, for just like you start to get close, you start to rest in the moment, you start to relax, and then there's this, mm, you know, it just keeps happening in every moment. It's like there's, there's a, a very, very subtle restlessness that just will not settle down, you know. I mean, I was encouraged by hearing that this was one of the last uh, states to go, <laughs> you know, long after uh, sloth and torpor and. Uh, aversion and uh, sensual desire are uprooted, you know, there's still, there's still restlessness in the mind. But there it was, and, and, and then in seeing it, walking after walking, sitting after sitting, and really feeling it very deeply, I was like getting more and more agitated by it. I didn't want to be restless. I wanted to be peaceful and calm not seeing that the agitation was actually the thing that was preventing me from being peaceful and calm. Just really getting into this state of aversion in relation to the restlessness, and then hating the fact that I hated the restlessness, you know, and building this huge state out of it. This is, uh, this is what's called in the, in the trade a, a multiple hindrance attack. <laughs> <laughs> Just all crashing in on ourselves at one time. So what to do uh, with these states of mind? What to do when we have a lot of uh, aversion or uh, hatred or pulling away this, this kind of energy in the mind? Buddha gave a, a lot of really good pointers uh, the first one that he talked about is the practice of metta. And, uh, you know, he said to, to really make, develop the practice of uh, benevolence in the mind towards ourselves and towards very specific people and towards situations to uh, approach our lives with a heart full of metta. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I really love the metta practice, and uh, uh, certainly um, most of you have, have learned it. But I also like to think of, of metta as uh, very much a part of the Vipassana practice. It's the quality of the heart that allows us to be soft enough and open enough and receptive enough to get close to the things that are difficult. You know, just to hold them in our hearts and in our minds. That's not easy because, uh, you know, the, the natural tendency is to move away. And this is a practice that invites us to, to do a 180 and turn around and breathe in the difficulty. Well, that, that takes a certain softness, a certain uh, kindness towards ourselves. We really do have to take care with ourselves in the practice. I think it's something that we can often forget. We were talking about this too in, in one of the groups today where, you know, that, that sense of um, not striving so hard, you know, not pushing so hard that you're starting to pull your hair out with practice. You know, it, 
it's supposed to be easy. And maybe it could be a little fun (laughs) if the attitude is right and if the heart is open. One of the uh, ways that Buddha uh, talked about uh, metta is to, uh, when, when you find yourself in a situation where there's uh, a, a lot of um, antagonism or adversity towards a person, to uh, make a practice out of uh, replacing those uh, unwholesome feelings with uh, kind and loving feelings. And, and one way of doing that is to, um, instead of thinking about the, the things that you don't like about them, to try to think about something kind or something good that they do. Um, and, you know, this may not always be easy in the moment, so it's often recommended to do it when you're not particularly feeling the adversity, to do it continuously, whether you're feeling it in that moment or not. I find this to be a really helpful practice to to actually try to hold them in that way. But I thought it was really uh, practical uh, advice on the part of the Buddha to to recognize that um, there. He, he said he actually said in this in the sutta that when when there's uh, when you can't think of anything kind about the person, or that the, that the, that there may not actually be uh, a good deed or a goodness in them that, that you can see you know but at, at least if, if that's the case and really recognizing that that might be the case uh, to hold them with compassion because one is realizing that they are sowing the seeds of their own future their own uh, uh, rebirth in states of woe and difficulty. So I thought, well, that's something I can wrap myself around. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, that's okay. I can I can think that kind of thought for people that I'm having difficulty with. And he said, when when situations are difficult, to um, use restraint, to just back off a little bit and let um, impermanence take its course, you know, let it move through, let it move on. If you can sort of give it a little space, give it a moment. So the, um, another thing that he, uh, he talked about is um, contemplating the law of karma. And this is something um, uh, Ajahn was talking about last night, is using, using reflective thought, actually using thought in, in practice, um, that it doesn't, it's not something that we have to avoid, that we can actively um, think about things that are useful and supportive to practice. And so in, in working with aversion, uh, contemplating the law of karma is one of the things that uh, he suggests bringing into your meditation in that way. In, 
what he's saying here really is to recognize that um, just as we say in, in the chanting, we're the owners of our karma, born of our karma, heirs of our karma, abide supported by our karma. Whatever karma we do for good or for ill, of that we are the heirs. And so I look at this really in two ways, that to, to give me some space around what's happening in this moment, that what uh, has come up for me in this moment is actually a fruit, it's result, it's a result of the way that I have held this kind of situation in the past. You know, when we were talking about the um, law of dependent origination, and one, one way that this is looked at is that uh, a certain part of it represents the past, another part the present and the future. And the part that's the past is the, um, the fact that when we die in ignorance, there's rebirth and there's the body and mind and the six senses and uh, contact at those six sense doors. And there is the experience of that as pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. This is said that this is a result, the experience uh, of um, this moment as pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral is actually the result of past actions. So that sort of helps me get a little space around it and realize that there's not a heck of a whole lot I can do about that. It's already been set in place, and so what's here is here. And that gives me a certain resting, a certain sense of resting in it, and allowing it to be here. And then thinking about the uh, setting up um, future karma, you know, that sense of being supported by our karma. I think often we think of karma only as negative and unwholesome, you know, the difficult stuff that we have to deal with, and forget that there's wholesome karma, and that's bearing fruit too, you know, and that... Um, mindfulness is the key to our capacity to uh, create wholesome karma for ourselves in the future. That if we can see the experience of difficulty and be with it mindfully, then the uh, going into states of aversion or hatred or ill will in relation to it doesn't happen. It short circuits the whole process. So in the doing of that, I'm actually lessening, less lessening the possibility that I will have to deal with this same kind of experience again. These kinds of things really help me uh, work with uh, difficulty. Another thing that I think about with karma is that it... Uh, It reminds me of when I was raised Catholic. (laughs) Who wasn't? (laughs) Seems like everybody that comes to Buddhism was Catholic at one time. One of the things that used to uh, used to trouble me in in uh, in my Catholic faith was we had this uh, 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 experience of uh, confession. You had to go to confession every so often. You had to go at least once a year. But I went to Catholic schools, and so we went. every week or uh, every month at the very least. And, and they gave you this little book that um, 
you used to examine your conscience. <laughs> so it was a list of all the possible sins that you could commit, and, and you would go through them and, and sort of get a sense of, you know, which one did I do, and do a little checklist before, <laughs> before going into the confessional. And uh, so I would do this. But one of them always jumped out at me. And, and it was this, uh, it said something like, um, did I fail to avoid the occasion of sin? And I went, wow, that's heavy. <laughs> fail to avoid the occasion of sin. And the way it was explained to us was that it, was, it wasn't, it, it wasn't, you know, as if it wasn't bad enough that you commit the sin, but that if you put, in a, put yourself in a situation where you might commit a sin, that that was a sin too. You know? And I never liked that. I never, I never understood it really, you know, until I, I, uh, I started to think about um, karma. Because one of the things that I, I've really come to see through this practice is that I, I, I've developed an incredibly healthy respect for the sheer force of my karmic tendencies. You know, no matter how hard I try <laughs> sometimes. And like, I, know, I know this situation. I know this situation is going to give rise to this. You know, I've seen it over and over again. And yet I continue to put myself in this situation and bear the fruit of that. And I saw this in a really, um, really very specific way um, one time when I was here at IMS practicing. And um, I used to sit uh, during the three-month course, I like to sit way in the back there because um, I like to walk down in the lower walking room. And that way I could just kind of slip out the back door, go down the steps, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, without a lot of Verbs, you know, a lot of uh, passing, a lot of stimulating things that might get my attention and uh, distract me. So uh, this particular retreat, there was a, a gal downstairs who was doing the walking meditation, and uh, she was obviously in a lot of pain because she would do the walk, she would walk, and 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 then she'd s- sit down right in the middle of the walking path and just start sobbing and pounding the floor, and crying, and crying. And then she'd get up, and she'd walk again, and she'd sit, she'd cry, and, you know, show anxious um, movements. And, and, and then it, she'd start to wail, and moan, and groan. You know, and it was very disturbing to my meditation. <laughs> I started to just really get, uh, you know, first I tried to work with it with metta. It's like, oh, this poor person, she's really suffering, you know. And, and, and what's the matter with you? Why can't you be spacious around this, this kind of activity? You know? <laughs> but then it went on day after day after day. Every walking period. And uh, so I, uh, I, I just kept getting angrier and angrier. Uh, the force of this was really building. So I went to the teacher. Actually, this was during an Upandita retreat. And I, and I went to um, the teacher... And uh, finally, actually, after a few days, because at first I was a little too embarrassed to even talk about it, you know, because I was getting so angry over this situation, and I, I didn't want to admit that I didn't have the kindness in my heart to endure it. But finally I did, and, and uh, 
So I told, I told him what was happening. You know what he said? He said, uh, oh, um, anger arises easily. You should avoid that room. <laughs> I went, duh. <laughs> this had never occurred to me. You know, I didn't, I didn't get it that, you know, this is, this is the way it is. You know, this is, the force of this tendency is so great that really you have to take care. You have to know the, the terrain of your own mind in any given moment. Know the strength of the tendencies that arise in you and know the way it is right now and, and work with it, you know, and not put yourself in situations Avoid the occasion of sin. <laughs> you know, not keep putting oneself in situations that keep giving rise to these things. Because actually, the, the, the constantly going back into that lower walking room and having this state arise is actually quite unwholesome. You know, you, that has karmic weight. You know, you're, you're conditioning more of it. So I really grown to have a, a, a healthy respect for the power of this. So there's really the contemplating karma, the effect of karma in the mind. Oh, another thing he said, Buddha said, in, in working with aversion and ill will is... Um, to uh, contemplate your own faults and not another person's. And I thought, ooh, <laughs> you know. Did you ever notice how much we do each other's practice? <laughs> Walking, certainly living here in, in community as we do, uh, you know, there's, there can be this sense of really uh, looking out for each other's practice, you know, that, that they, you shouldn't be doing that kind of, kind of thing. You know, it's amazing. It, it, one of the things I talk about uh, a lot with the, the staff here at IMS is um, just really getting a sense of how, how much we need to have more spaciousness around um, each other's shortcomings. You know, it's like it, somebody blow, gets a little upset or irritated in the kitchen or a little more too compulsive, you know, and, and, and you can build, you can, it can ruin your day. You can build a whole thing around it, you know, not wanting them to be that way. So, I, you know, I was saying, like, can we, can we make it a practice of having imperfect moments and letting it be okay that we have imperfect moments? You know, that, that, that when this kind of thing comes up in the, in the kitchen or in the office or wherever you are, that you can just, you know, look at the person and just go, okay, forget it, don't worry about it, you know? And just let uh, a moment like that pass. Let it drop, you know, on the floor next to us instead of uh, making such an issue out of everything. You know, it's, it's sort of get, getting in touch with the fact that it's a, it's a given that none of us has our act together. You know? Let that be okay so that we can have a little bit more uh, space, a little bit more kindness towards each other. And these states won't arise in us in relation to each other. And sort of in that defensive way, on the ricochet. 
really like that one. One, uh, one winter retreat at, uh, at Amaravati, um, Ajahn Sumedha was teaching the retreat, and he was really in, in rare form. He was so good. His teaching was so clear and crisp. And it, it happened to be um, the winter. I was there as a layperson supporting the, the monastics on retreat. And it happened to be the winter of the uh, Gulf War. And so uh, we were all on retreat, so we essentially, we missed the whole war, you know. Uh, but uh, Ajahn Sumedho um, made a point. He, he said, actually, he hadn't listened to the radio in 25 years, but he um, listened to it during this retreat so that we could have some sense of what was going on. And uh, he would report to us uh, what was happening. Uh, And I think what what really touched me about this was that it's like while everybody was kind of getting all fired up about the war, I mean, I learned about it later on that you know it was quite a quite a, a, a exciting experience uh, for a lot of people, sort of getting that sense of you know like a football game mentality, as I understand, or you know let's really get in there and kick butt, you know, let the Americans get in there and show them how to do it. Uh, and, and, and Ajahn kept bringing it back. He, he, he would tell us what was happening, He'd tell us about these cruise missiles, you know, that these intelligent missiles that could, you know, leave a ship way out in sea and, and kind of go down the main street and go in the front door of the building before they blew it up, you know, really so precise and, and uh, uh, hitting their target. Uh, and, uh, you know, these suits that the the soldiers were wearing to protect themselves against the chemical warfare. All of that was like, you know, sitting there on retreat and hearing these reports, it was an incredible uh, feeling. You know, you're so open and and feel the the hatred and the stupidity in the world, uh, this kind of behavior. But the, the thing that really stood out in my mind is sort of, connected with this sense of looking at our own faults and not another's, was he would, he would talk about Saddam Hussein, and he said, that, uh, he said that Hussein was the perfect tyrant. He was so despicable, you know, that it was really easy for us to hate him. And you could really see in the experience of... Uh, that hatred, a sense of righteousness and justification around it, like there really was something to hate, you know. And, and this is what war does, you know. It really gets you to rallying uh, in, in, into certain states where you bypass all sense of reason or insight or wisdom. And uh, he kept reminding us to to go to that place in ourselves where we could see that hatred towards Hussein, you know, and, and really realize that, you know, uh, it was our own hatred that we were feeling. You know, can you feel that? You know, it's a, it, it, it's, it was our own hatred. And also getting the, getting the sense that 
when we uh, rally around causes like this, that we really um, lose touch with the fact that that hatred is arising in this heart. Really touch that place. Find a way to make peace with the fact that there are people like this in the world. Really recognizing that if, if there's, it's not to say don't do anything about it, but that if something is going to be done about it, that feeling the pain and the hurt of that kind of hostility actually gives rise to compassion so that our actions will be born out of compassion and wisdom and not out of our own hatred for the object. So, uh, one more thing um, that he talked about in, in terms of working with aversion and, and hatred and ill will. is to, uh, this is interesting because I think think it's mentioned in all of the five hindrances as an antidote. That is to to, um, keep the company of people who are not hateful. Keep the company of people who are not restless. Keep the company of people who who have a lot of faith, who aren't full of doubt. And so that really points to the value of sangha, the value of this, just, just this kind of gathering, uh, people who, whose intention it is to be good, to be kind. I think this is why I love uh, going to the monastery so much. You know, it's not that it isn't in other places, but there's something about the monastery. <laughs> and it's not that there's not difficulty there. You know, but when... Uh, when you're there, it's like the, there's a um, there's a rising up. You know, there's a, a the, the 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 standard, the way that we are together, is to be thinking about each other. You know, to think about each other's welfare. You know, when I was watching this one time when I was there, it was like when I, when I was younger, I, I traveled some in Mexico, and after I had been there for a while. I realized one day that I was thinking in Spanish, you know, and uh, I thought, oh, this is far out, you know. <laughs> I never had that experience of thinking in another language. And um, I, I was remembering this at the monastery because uh, I noticed one day that um, I was quite automatically thinking about the sisters before myself. You know, it's, all of a sudden it was like a... <gasps> Oh my goodness! <laughs> I'm really in a state of caring about another person and thinking of them and not myself. And and there's there's a it's sort of like the the culture in the monastery, you know, so that you're uh, it's quite easy to become that way while you're there. You have that feeling of mm, you know it's like a 
a moving forward and a, and a reaching out instead of a contracting and a moving away, which is often my experience um, elsewhere. So you really, you really get a sense of, the, of why it is that uh, he's saying that the, the support of Sangha is so important. So uh, I'm thinking about the, um, in a few days when we'll all have a, an opportunity to uh, talk and get to know each other. Don't think about it too much yet though. <laughs> but uh, in, in a few days we will have that opportunity. And uh, you know, I really uh, wish for all of us that we, we take the time to um, make a, that kind of connection with each other and to really be aware and hold in our hearts the fact that there are other people in the world whose intention it is to uh, free ourselves from the, the states that, that cause suffering, the states that create harm and difficulty in the world. So I, uh, I look forward to getting to know you in that way. I offer you this tonight for your reflection. Sadhu Karan.